You're listening to All Things Video, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. This episode is brought to you by Epidemic Sound, the company reimagining music licensing for the digital age. Epidemic's library contains tens of thousands of tracks that you can license a la carte or on a subscription basis. Unlike other music licensing companies, Epidemic Sound owns its entire catalog and makes tracks available via one straightforward license to cover all your needs, worldwide and in perpetuity. No more headaches around usage reporting, performance royalties, or murky rights ownership. It's better for the artists and better for you, the creator. So whatever your music needs, Epidemic Sound has got you covered. You're listening to All Things Video. I'm your host, James Creech, and today's guest is Doug Reif, co-founder of Me Too. Doug, welcome to the show. Thanks, James. Good to be here. You started your career in television production. So what attracted you to media and entertainment? I was one of these guys who didn't have uh, any family or friends who were in the business, and I was just fascinated from it from an early, early age uh, and knew I wanted to try to break into it. I, I was grew up in the New England area, moved to New York after college, uh, crashed on my sister's couch and just kind of networked a little bit to try to get a job. And I just wanted to learn more about how people made things uh, when it came to TV primarily or film. Uh, and I was you know, fortunate to uh, fall in with a, um, a great little boutique talent agency in New York right out of college. And uh, at one point I thought maybe I'd, I wanted to be an actor. Uh, I did a lot of acting as a, as a kid in, uh, in high school and college, did some summer stock. And I wanted to get a taste of it. And it was a really eye-opening experience right off the right off the bat, I think. Uh, I think I, I showed up on my, my first day and I said, all right, I'm here. What do I do? And they said, Doug, you know, why don't you go through all the headshots and resumes and decide who we want to meet and who we don't want to meet? I remember thinking, how in the world would I be qualified to do something like this as a 21-year-old kid? And, you know, lesson 101, Doug, uh, which I learned at that particular time, keep all the beautiful people, keep all the people who went to kind of the top dramatic schools in the game, provided a list and basically toss everybody else. And it was probably the eighth or ninth day on the job where I was opening up the uh, the mail and I came across an acting teacher who was honestly just a real prick, uh, who had given me a B out of spite. And he was one of these kind of affected guys who clearly was not exactly happy with his particular place in life that, at that particular time. And cut to a couple of years later, me being a potential decision maker in his career. And I remember looking at his headshot and resume, ripping it up and throwing it in the trash <laughs> and saying to myself, you know what, if somebody like myself could have even an inkling of power or being a deciding factor in something like being rep by any, maybe I should think of another aspect of the business. And then I just kind of tried my hand at production, was a production assistant, was a production coordinator, moved around a little bit and fortunately found a mentor and this guy named Albie Hecht to uh, was an independent producer, had a production company in New York, and then moved up within the ranks as a network executive at Nickelodeon and kind of brought me along for the ride. So sounds like you were fascinated in the creative arts from a young age and then ultimately realized you liked being behind the camera more than in front of the camera. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I just need to be in control a little bit more. And while nobody's ever fully in control in this business, at least having a little bit more of a hand in terms of how something was crafted or created and eventually marketed and sold. And I think as as a performer, certainly back then in the late 80s, early 90s, where you didn't have a YouTube, let's say, it was much more difficult to promote oneself as a performer or as an actor, I felt lost. I knew that I needed to do something that was going to be 
allow me to control aspects of my, my profession in ways that you couldn't do as an actor. So you mentioned your path to Nickelodeon, where you ultimately spent 10 years and uh, became the vice president of program development. So tell us more about that experience and what you were working on. You know, it was, it was amazing. I was, I was a young guy who had the fortune of being able to develop both live action animation and long form TV movies for, for a network that was number one. Uh, I mean, Nickelodeon during the, you know, nineties, uh, was the most kind of highly rated cable network that there was. And, and kids were truly, truly invested and loyal in every single show. It seems that we, that we put out there. And, and I loved working with writers and producers and directors and, and, and performers to kind of develop new ideas. And it was an incredible job. I did a lot of international development as we were launching our international feeds throughout Latin America and, and, and Europe and Asia. I had the opportunity to roll up my sleeves and, and, and executive produce our first uh, TV movies, as well as uh, have a hand in, in green lighting such shows as, as SpongeBob and, you know, a bunch of other, these bunch of other big hits that now continue to play and perform 20 something years later, which is, which is amazing. So it, it was a magical time to be part of the, the MTV networks. It just seems like there's so many folks like myself who, who got their training in that world of cable TV who are now kind of morphed and, and molded and, and, and kind of adapted to the changing world of media that we're in today. And let's talk about that because some like yourselves have absolutely bridged a gap and made the switch. Others have not, right? And in fact, I think, you know, people look at some of those traditional media companies, Nickelodeon being one of them, that are struggling to maybe adapt to digital. So what do you think has changed so fundamentally in that time? Everything. It's really, you know, when I think back to those times and 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 again, I was a young kid who wasn't married, didn't have kids, and yet I was the Pied Piper of New York City. It seems every time I wore a Nickelodeon t-shirt or a Nickelodeon hat where every kid and their mother or father or family would come and say, oh my God, where'd you get that? Do you work for Nickelodeon? And everybody was watching that one particular cable channel. Certainly Disney was big as well, but Nickelodeon had, I think, really cornered the market on kids. We were weird, funny kids rather than clean family fun. And that was the distinction that that particular time. I think that was the, that was really the only place to go for that kind of content if you were a kid. This day and age, the, as we all know, there, there's so many choices to choose from. And I, I think that, you know, if you're a cable network or, or a broadcast network, it's, it's challenging out there and, and it's tough. And, and I just really feel fortunate that, you know, after being at, at a network for almost 11 years, I kind of hit a wall and I just felt like if I'm going to be a company man, I'd like to try my hand at launching my own company. And my wife at the time, who had her own independent production company, who was producing primarily Spanish content for the cable networks that were launching their feeds in Latin America, she was, I'd come home every day and from my Nickelodeon job and say, you should see what's happening with all this market research we're getting at the country as far as the demographic shift that we're seeing in our country. And you should really do more English language content aimed at Latinos. And she was a little intimidated to do that because her, her bread and butter had been original content in Spanish, mostly unscripted stuff for the discoveries of the world and some of scripts networks. And it was kind of a, a weird natural transition where we started creating ideas together and started producing together. I became a seller after being a buyer for so many years. And we, we had a successful independent production company for many, many years that really had that Latino point of view to our content, which is ironic. I'm a Jewish guy from Boston who thinks he's Latino. Well, I was going to ask, normally I wouldn't go into this on the podcast, but it actually seems germane to the rest of the story. So how did you meet your wife? It's funny. And it's certainly one of these things where you get older, you look back and you realize 
maybe your parents are right more times than not. And so, as I said before, I grew up in the Boston area. I remember in junior high school getting the, the choice between English or Spanish as, as, a, as a language choice. My mother's from Canada. My brother and sister took French. And maybe just to be different or maybe because something clicked in me, I chose Spanish. And the first day of, of school, first day of Spanish class in, in, I think it was seventh grade, the teacher went around and they were like, Mike, you're Miguel. David, you're David. William, you're Memo. Doug, you're Diego. And I was like, Diego? Me llamo Diego. And I, and I, and I, there, there was a sense of, sense of pride. And, and I, I think it, I just, I thought it was really cool. And so I'd come home speaking Spanish to my family and they thought it was the weirdest thing in the world. And I took to the language really quickly. It was a running joke for years, even afterwards in college. I'd send my parents cards in Spanish, like, Feliz cumpleaños. And they'd be like, Doug, you're crazy. And my dad, who was certainly a forward thinker and taught at the Harvard Business School for many years. He's a psychiatrist as well. He's done a bunch of consulting. He'd say to me, Doug, you should really, really focus more on, on your Spanish or, or on Latin media. And this is right out of college. And I said, Dad, listen, with, with all due respect, I'm not going to go into Latin media. I'm not going to marry a Latina. You know, it seems so foreign to me from that side of it. But sure enough, I met my, my wife working on a production in Orlando at Universal Studios. Uh, while I was at Nickelodeon, I was overseeing a show called Guts, which was like this American gladiators for kids. And the fourth season, we did a, a global Guts, which was a international sports competition with nine countries and Beatriz was producing on behalf of Mexico. We clicked, stayed friends for a couple of years, and then it kind of turned into more of a, blossomed into a beautiful relationship that was long distance for two and a half years. I was in New York and she was in LA. Wow. And then after my, my tenure at Nickelodeon, as I mentioned, we, we formed a production company together. And it, it really was a situation where our skills truly complemented each other. I was a creative producer who had come from an English language network. She was a hardcore nuts and bolts producer from Mexico City, former honor, honor personality who was now trying to, I think, broaden the scope of, of the content that she was producing. We ended up producing almost a thousand hours or half hours of television for folks like Spike and MTV and Nickelodeon and Food Network and Travel Channel and, and a bunch of other folks built a studio down in Mexico and, and really over the course of, I think, 11 or 12 years became the, the go-to creative shop for Latin flavored content. And it really was perfect timing and, and, and mirrored what was happening to our country uh, where more and more people started seeing the importance of diversifying their content. You'd like to think that it would have started sooner, but we all know it usually takes something like a, a census or something to come out before people realize, oh shit, we, gotta, we have to go after this particular demo. We all know Hispanics uh, are driving population growth in this country and, and really impacting and influencing popular culture. So you were doing this originally out of New York City, and then also it sounds like a bit bi-coastal to Los Angeles? Yeah, when I, uh, toward the end of my Nickelodeon tenure, I moved out here to LA and was overseeing both East Coast and West Coast teams development for Nickelodeon as well as the, some of the international teams. And when I left, I was already here in LA. We started our production company here and then built the studio down in Mexico in Baja because there's a tremendous kind of creative culture in Northern Baja, the Rosarito and Sanada area, where Fox many years ago built a their Titanic water tank facility. And they did a couple of big projects uh, over the years, the Master and Commander and Pearl Harbor and scenes and things like that. But they didn't really explore it that much. But you, people had moved from parts of Latin America and other parts of Mexico to this sleepy surfer beach community thinking that there would be year-round production. And Beatrice and I saw what was happening when we'd go down and visit her parents who had a, a beach house down there. And we said, we can really tap into this this world. And what was fascinating to us was that a lot of these folks, you know, were 
perfectly bicultural and bilingual, and they had one foot in Mexico, one foot in San Diego, essentially, they really were bringing a unique perspective and point of view toward the creative process. And to this day, we're we're going to take advantage of that. It sounds like Beatriz has kind of this innate entrepreneurial drive. And you mentioned that during your time at Nickelodeon, you've been there for a decade, you were ready to start something new and you wanted that to be your own. Have you always considered yourself an entrepreneur or what happened at that moment to inspire you to do this? You know, I think I'd be lying to you if I told you that I always had that in me. I think I, I was a very much of an independent thinker. And I think I learned a tremendous amount being part of the Viacom machine. But like I think a lot of other traditional media or former media folks, uh, you get to a point in your in your life or your career after a certain number of years and you realize, is there more beyond being this company guy. I thought there's a lot of things that I'd love to do that I can't really do in my current job. I love the the, the world of kids programming, but I also felt like I want to stretch my creative arms a little bit more and, and, and expand in terms of some things that we were doing. And I also saw that opportunity from the, from the Hispanic side, just from being married to a Latina, being immersed in the culture and loving it and seeing that there were so many other stories that weren't being told that maybe I could have a hand in doing. And, and that was really what triggered it for me. That kind of ignited a spark in that, that I saw other people weren't necessarily doing that along with a, proud, smart, charismatic, passionate Latina woman like Beatriz, who had tremendous experience on the production side as well, we could do something special. And once you have that spark, it's easy to get hooked. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly right. As soon as we started selling our shows, as soon as we started, I was always a creator of some sort, but as soon as we started seeing that people were hungry for our knowledge and our, our, our creative talent, that became contagious a little bit. And we wanted to kind of build other things. I mean, we started off in LA, in Santa Monica, selling shows. And then as things were progressing, as I mentioned before, we said we could actually build a facility and take advantage of some of the folks down in Baja. And then we got into the facilities business. And then we started renting it out for music videos and independent films that were happening down there. And then, you know, we, along with, I guess, many other folks saw the fact that TV by itself, just linear television, wasn't the only play in town and the only game in town. And as an independent producer, you're looking for all angles and as many buyers as possible to sell your stuff to. And so the stars were aligned, I think, because we were approached right when we were thinking about, we should really kind of dabble in digital or think about launching a digital studio. And what does that mean uh, with regard to the TV business that we had? We were approached by Brian Singer and Warner brothers to look at a project that they were starting to develop called H plus, which was this, I think one of the first premium digital series that were, were, were being developed and funded by the likes of a Warner premiere at that particular time. And uh, they came to us and said, help us figure this out. Our, you know, we have this for a budget. We want to do 48 episodes. It has this international cast. The story takes place in 16 different countries. And at first I said, you guys are on crack. There's no way we're doing this. And, you know, after looking at the script, which we thought was brilliant by a, a writer named John Cabrera and dissecting the story and breaking it down as you do with various productions, we realized, listen, we may not make a lot of money on this, but it'll be a tremendous learning experience for us to tell this narrative story in a nonlinear way. And we ended up producing it for Brian and for Warner Brothers. And we took the production to Santiago, Chile, 
20 or so actors, uh, many of them from Los Angeles that we flew. We did a, made a trade out deal with Lan Chile and, you know, it was producing at its best to, to be able to pull off this cinematic sci-fi thriller series for a digital first audience. Uh, where was that distributed on YouTube? Oh, uh, so, wow. so, okay. so Warner brothers, uh, created their, you know, their own YouTube channel. And this was certainly before YouTube read. So it wasn't behind any kind of paywall, but, uh, and I remember saying to Brian and, and to the Warner brothers folks, I'm like, guys, this is a really high-end premium series. Why don't we take it to Sci-Fi Network? Why don't we take it to one of these other buyers? And and I think it was Brian, someone who said, "Doug, you're missing the you're missing the boat." You know, the the, the fanboys, or maybe it was John the Creator, John Cabrera the Creator, but he said the fanboys are going to be able to consume this content in ways that you know you couldn't even imagine. Whether they'll be able to play episodes out of order, and you know, it's almost a jigsaw puzzle in terms of how the story unfolds. And so, you know, you may, maybe want to watch episode eleven and then episode two rather than watching it in a, a sequential order. And it was an eye opening experience for me there because it was. Now that I look back on it, I think we probably produced too many episodes at that time and they weren't rolled out in binge fa- fashion, which may have been more effective. People loved the series, but I think by week six or seven or eight or nine, it became exhausting and hard to keep up. And you realize what happened before and they're, they're still up there, but to revisit the episodes, it might've been better to have fewer episodes up all at once. So this was the wake up call. This was the moment where you said digital has incredible opportunities for enhancing storytelling, but you were still trying to fit it perhaps into a traditional thought process. Yeah. And, you know, it was, you know, we learned a lot and things like get into the story quick. Don't have a a long drawn out pre-produced open that maybe you would have done on the TV side. If you're going to do a recap or or any kind of callback to uh, various character stories, get in quick, snappy, the the editing, I think the pacing of the story was, was, was much quicker than you might find in a traditional a TV show, the way we promoted it with some of these talent. And they weren't YouTubers per se, but a lot of them were international stars that were fairly big on social media in their own countries or here in the US. And so we certainly used them as promotional tools to, to talk about the show. And it did really, really well. And we want a streamy and, you know, I think it was a webby and all these people came and, and we're, we're then approaching Beatrice and I to, to do more digital stuff. And, and people were like, you should set up a YouTube channel. And I remember Beatrice and I looking at each other, we're like, yeah, we're not going to set up a YouTube channel. We have a pretty successful TV business. You know, this is amazing. But but maybe there was something else that was going on that was worth exploring more closely. And we started seeing the birth of the MCN. And we started seeing that YouTube was providing funding for a couple select partners. And we were watching for a while and, and feeling people out and seeing what were people were doing in the Latin space. And I think we, in some ways, we may have waited a little bit too long to kind of jump in because we, we missed the boat on on the production funding or production grants that YouTube was getting, but that in some ways made us hungrier to, to figure it out. And the idea for me too was to create a media company, a media brand. Uh, again, I came from the world of MTV networks, which was a master's degree in branding and marketing. And so, you know, you, you saw the verticals that were so clearly branded and defined from Nickelodeon to VH1 to MTV to Nick at Night to Comedy Central. Beatrice was launching feeds in Latin America for Discovery. So she was launching Discovery in Espanol and People in Arts and things like that. So we, we saw that how effective that could be if you can create a, a brand that means something to people. And we also looked at the landscape and realized the Latin media landscape and, and realized there wasn't a lot of reinvention that had been done outside of the traditional Spanish broadcasters, the Univisions of the world and the tele- Telemundos of the world who were doing really, really well at the time and producing, for the most part, telenovelas and news and sports and Sabado Gigante type game shows. 
But what about everything else? And, and what about English-speaking Latinos in this country who, as we often say, kind of consider themselves part of the 200%, 100% culturally proud Latinos and 100% Americans. And they have commercial tastes like everybody else and, and, and want great characters, great stories. And they either don't speak Spanish well enough or don't have any interest in consuming entertainment in Spanish. What about those guys? Uh, or the programming on the traditional platforms like Univision and Telemundo is is older than, you know, reaching those millennial audiences. Exactly. And I think just, you know, a lot of that content that, and it sounds funny coming from a white guy, but it's content that maybe is created by white executives for Latinos. And therefore, a lot of the cultural relevance or significance is not part of the makeup. So you realize the power of YouTube, and this is when your production company morphed into what became Me Too. We said, this is a bigger play than a, than a YouTube channel. What if we start a media company? And like, we had, I remember laughing going, well, what is that? Like, you know, I mean, we can't be like a Nickelodeon because that requires hundreds of millions of billions of dollars. And, you know, how do we get into it? And, and the MCN thing wasn't entirely appealing to us, but we saw that it was a useful strategy to scale. And more importantly, or equally important, I should say, to forge relationships with a lot of these Latino influencers that we had no relationships with. And so we had great reputation and we were seasoned executives, you know, from uh, as far as producers and, and we could point to shows that people were familiar with and, and that, that helped. But uh, literally, I remember producing pilots for our Me Too brand that looked just like TV. They looked fantastic. And we finished them and we thought they were great. And we, we produced them with a lot of our crews that we use for our, our TV series. And we looked at them and we said, let's put them up. But what does that mean? First of all, we didn't even know how to put them up. But like, how would anybody know where to find them? You know, it's a cluttered, cluttered ecosystem, the world of YouTube. And we realized that we, we need some help here. We got to figure out some strategy in terms of how to go about producing content that's relevant to this particular audience. And, and I think we also realized that for the dreams and the, the vision that we had for this company, we needed an operational partner. We needed somebody that knew how to raise money, that, that you know, had a little more experience on the finance side for, for what we were doing. We were essentially a, a boutique production company where two folks that could create and sell and market and manage budgets but this was a whole other world that we knew we were getting into. And so we, we approached a, a friend of ours who was running a big, big cable operation in Bogota. He had been educated in the States, but was a proud Latino uh, himself and had a lot of experience. He'd worked for Fox and uh, Bertelsmann. And um, like I said, was back in Bogota doing some really interesting things uh, with the media world there. And we convinced him to come. And, you know, so Roy Burstein is our CEO and Me Too. And it was a a really helpful and important decision for us to make because I think we wouldn't have been able to fake it that long. Let's just say, <laughs> let's just say that, you know? So Roy was instrumental in kind of building up the foundations of this next generation media company, getting the operational expertise to take it to that next level. How did you accelerate along the learning curve to figure out the YouTube component of that equation? You know, you know what's really interesting? I remember back then, we're talking about now 2012, I guess, way back in 2012, which as we know, <laughs> in, 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 in this business, it feels every year is like 10. 
people were really generous with their time. People were really, really open and willing to sit down and share what's working for them, what's not working for for them. I had been friends and pretty tight with Brian Robbins for many years because he produced shows for Nickelodeon when I was at Nickelodeon. And so I remember sitting down with him and kind of hearing what they were doing with the awesomeness. And But it was even the, the guys at Tastemade, the guys at Refinery. I mean, a, a lot of these, 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 these folks that some of them had received the production grants from, from YouTube, others were figuring out like, like, like we were, but full screen, you know, we, at one point we actually were using, uh, George and the guys from Full Screen to help onboard partners because we didn't even know how to do that. Uh, and that was a service that they were offering back then. But sitting down with a lot of these smart, digitally native folks and, and executives who, you know, many of them had started on that platform, educated us. Uh, and then it was trial and error. You know, I think that uh, fortunately, Alan Debrevois was a great advisor and continues to be, and he sits on our board. And he said to us, guys, you're overthinking it. Just start making stuff. Just start trying things. Things may change next week or two weeks or a month from now, but just get going. And I think that there's probably a tendency when you're starting anything to overanalyze things. But at that particular time, and even now, things move so quickly that you got to get into the game. Sometimes the hardest thing is just getting started. And I think Alan's advice is a great one. You know, it'll get better as you go along. You'll figure it out. It's great that you're able to tap into that network of resources that you built up over the years from your traditional entertainment background. But in some ways, I agree. I mean, it seems like there's something unique that happened. There was a moment, a cultural moment that happened in LA around that time period. So perhaps we're all fortunate to be here when that happened, but at the same time also leverage those connections as everyone was learning together. Absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, it's it's incredibly exciting to be in Los Angeles right now. We we talk about it a lot and and, and I know, you know, one of our, our investors, Mark Suster over at Upfront, uh, is a real ambassador for you know, digital media or new media and the things that are happening here in Los Angeles, because it's a, it's a perfect kind of collision of you have VCs and you have creatives and you have tech and you have traditional storytellers and new storytellers coming together to create something fresh and new and different. Yeah, a hundred percent. It's totally a renaissance and it's the collision of new media and Hollywood all in one place. Yeah, absolutely. How did you settle on the name Me Too? We wanted something that was catchy. We wanted something first and foremost that could strike that emotional chord with Latinos. And, you know, it was one of those things where we're thinking, you know, we are community. We are family. We are me, you, me too. You know, me means my and two means you. So it's, it's a little bit like me and you or me and two. Not exactly, but it was familiar enough. And even if you didn't speak Spanish, it sounded good. It was kind of catchy. Uh, and we all know, you know, the shorter the better usually for domain names and things like that. It still kills me to this day because I like to consider myself fairly creative, as does Beatriz. And Roy was actually the one who came up with the name. I got to give him credit where he credits to. <laughs> we were sitting around my living room, bouncing with it with a, a whiteboard, just bouncing ideas and, and, and words and names. And he's like, what about Me Too? And I think Me Too, if I'm not mistaken, is actually a city in Colombia. So maybe that's what kind of inspired him. From day one, it was something that we just felt clicked. We knew we did a little informal focus group with, uh, with young Latinos. And they're like, that sounds like it could be for me. And ultimately, that is of paramount importance to what we do. You know, we really wanted me to, uh, and I think we're getting there, to resonate with young, multicultural, mostly Latino audiences and, and, and to feel that it's something that is still commercial, that is still on par with, you know, the big media companies, whether it's a BuzzFeed or whether it's Facebook or whether it's Snapchat, or, you know, those are platforms that we use to certainly in Snapchat to, to promote our content, but we didn't want it to be a 
back of the bus type brand where, you know, oh my God, this is strictly for Latinos. Nobody else is going to get it. You know, my feeling as somebody who is obsessed with various aspects of Latin culture, these stories are universal stories. And I think many of them are worthy of a, a Hollywood treatment, let's say. As you think back to those early early days, right? Thinking about 2012, figuring out YouTube for the first time, what was the hardest part of building the business? I think the hardest part was staying fluid and trying to stay flexible and open with kind of your vision and understanding of, of, of where the business could go uh, and what it could be. And to also learn from a lot of the younger folks that you were bringing into the, that we were bringing into the organization. The three of us had spent many years in various aspects of the entertainment industry. And we thought we knew everything. And it turns out we knew some, but there was a lot to learn. And I think so being flexible on that side of the business was, was really, really helpful. And I think equally important was listening to the audience, uh, listen to the, the comments, the feedback, the, you know, what was being shared, what was being liked and being able to adapt to that. We, at first were trying to be a little bit of everything to everybody when it came to Latino content. And we were producing English and Spanish versions of the same videos. We had an English vertical and a Spanish vertical and our Spanish videos were performing really, really well in Mexico and throughout Latin America. But we knew that the CPMs that could be generated from those videos would be 10 times as much in the US, but there weren't as many Spanish speaking millennials who were consuming that content. And so it was really fascinating because uh, let's say a, a DIY video that we'd produce would be watched primarily by 45 plus year old women here in the US. And the same video would be watched by 16 year old girls in Mexico. And we said, listen, audience is important, but revenue is important as well. And where are the dollars? Uh, where are the advertisers? Where's the opportunity? And again, nobody was really focusing on English speaking Latinos in this country. And we thought we should really focus on that. Yeah, I've noticed that it does seem to have been a strategic shift or maybe one of the key learnings from that early experience that starting off, you focused on Latin America and creating content for different audiences, even internationally, yeah. more focused today, certainly on, on US Hispanics, but also much more on maybe a publisher strategy, right? Building your own own brand, creating original content and uh, moving away perhaps or de-emphasizing the traditional MCN model. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, and I think that we, I remember having the conversation with somebody and people would ask us all the time, you know, so who's the biggest Latin influencer in the US? And you could kind of like rattle off a couple of YouTubers, but it made perfect sense to me for the answer to be Me Too. Me Too is the biggest Latin influencer. And so we all knew what was happening with regard to the talent deals that, 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 that people were striking and they were getting out of control. The, these guarantees that a lot of these kids were asking or their managers were asking. Um, and, uh, that didn't seem like a great business because if YouTube changed the rules or the talent decided not to do this anymore, you've just invested so much of your brand equity in these folks that you, you don't control anything. And it made much more sense to create content that was branded Me Too, that had a voice, that was uh, speaking directly to this audience, and very often incorporated some of this talent, but wasn't exclusively reliant on them. And today, you focus actually most of your time on working on those original productions for yeah. Me Too brands. Yeah, no, I, uh, you know, we are very much interested in expanding our audiences and the importance of our brand through various types of content. And while we are very, very active on Snapchat and, and, and Facebook and Instagram, I 
and it's certainly where my, my background is, I, I'm focusing my time right now on creating and shepherding our premium Me Too originals that we are amplifying and promoting through the Me Too machine, but that we are licensing to third-party buyers and folks like the YouTube Reds and the Comcast Watchables and the uh, Netflix and you know even traditional cable who are looking for ways of diversifying their own content and getting younger and finding folks that can bring audiences to the table. That is something that I am spending a lot of time doing right now because I think that it's great for our brand and ultimately it's great for these suppliers of content who aren't doing it if we don't do it. So it seems like you're selling a lot of content into a number of SVOD platforms, whether they're traditional or focused on premium content like Netflix. And of course, some of the shorter form new media players like YouTube Red, Watchable Go90. What is your take on that ecosystem? Do you feel like there's a lot of runway in SVOD or are we going to see eventual consolidation? I think there has to be more consolidation that's going to happen and it's going to happen quicker. I think there's just too many players right now there who don't have the audiences that that don't, you know, have, have maybe the, the barriers to entry were so low. I can launch s but to, to market and to cater to these audiences and to really make money at the end of the day is challenging. And I, I think that it only makes sense for more and more people to partner up together. Uh, you know, I, I think that it's really fascinating to see the new SVOD verticals that are being launched that are very niche because in some ways it reminds me of my early days of cable television. And when the sci-fis of the world that we're launching or the Nickelodeons or the Food Networks or all these other folks. Uh, and then I think a lot of these cable networks, you know, went away from what any kind of brand identity. I mean, I remember when Travel Channel was all about the poker tour and there wasn't really a travel aspect of that, but you, you know, you become a, a victim of your success in terms of when a, when a format works and I don't blame anybody for it. You just have to, you have to ride it, but it takes away from what I think maybe people were initially interested in coming to your home for at the beginning. I think now with the, the, the world of SVOD, there's a lot of exciting content that's being done for a lot of these folks. I just don't know whether the audience is going to be big enough to warrant a business. It's kind of the eventual bundling and unbundling of media that perpetuates itself in cycles over time. I think we have seen success, at least early, for some of these verticalized SVOD services. You think about Crunchyroll for animation content sure. or um, you know, Vicky and Drama Fever for Korean drama. Do you think that Latin American content, the type of content Me Too and, and similar players create, should live in its own home, should have a dedicated SVOD service, or will that ultimately live you know, across platforms. It's a, it's a great question, James. And we talk about it a lot because on one level, you know, I, and, and many of my colleagues are, have been very vocal about saying the type of content that we're producing should be on par and offered up in along with other kind of great mainstream premium, well-produced content as well. And my experience has been that, that a lot of Latinos don't necessarily like to be segregated to their own little bucket where it's the, you know, this is the Latin uh, channel. That being said, I think for some older audiences where they can't find, you know, they don't want to subscribe to cable anymore. They can't find a lot of the type of stuff that they are specifically looking for. That might be a good idea. But I think for young people, that's why we're so, we were so excited to be selected to be on the discover uh, page of Snapchat because we were finally part of other mainstream media companies. And it wasn't, I I always use this example because I think it's a good one. Beatriz would say to me, Doug, I honestly, and it's a horrible thing to say, I honestly don't really care that much when a Latino wins a Latin Grammy because they're Latin. But if a Latino wins a Grammy or a Golden Globe or an Oscar, whether they're Mexican and she's a proud Mexicana, whether they're Mexican or not, I feel a sense of pride. And and, and I want to 
I want to share that news with other Latinos and celebrate in that. And, and I think that, you know, that's a lot of what we try to do that to try to find content that resonates and connects with a universal audience. Uh, and certainly, you know, we'll strike that, that chord with Latinos and, and maybe they will get something extra out of it, but it doesn't turn off non-Latinos. So what does the future hold for me too? I think that there's so much opportunity uh, and so much possibilities for, for, for me too. I certainly am excited about the premium productions that we're getting to right now and investing more in content there. I'm excited to see where else our content can live. Yes, as you mentioned, we're certainly trying to build up our own verticals and our own social feeds. And we have a, a We Are Me Too owned and operated platform. But I really believe that, and I think we see it, it's happened with folks like Vice and other media companies, your content should try to live as in many places as possible. And that's where I see us going. I, I really see the Me Too brand becoming much more available to people uh, in as many places as possible. So let's switch gears and uh, finish up with some rapid fire questions. Sure. Okay. What are some of your favorite books? I'm a little bit of a geek. I, I, I've definitely gotten into kind of the Malcolm Gladwell kind of series of books over the last couple of years. So I, I would certainly see anytime he comes out with a new book, I'm usually there to buy it. Uh, and what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? You know, I think the best piece of advice I received was probably to be humble. And I learned it really, really early on in the business where I saw firsthand and someone told me to be careful about how you treat people. And the somebody who's your assistant today can be a president of a network, a Hollywood director, you know, a badass, a media mogul tomorrow. And so never burn your bridges and just treat people with respect. I think that comes back to the story of your drama teacher and you making the casting decision. I think absolutely, absolutely, it's yeah. true. I mean, I hate to say it, and I will not say his name, but uh, he was a real jerk. And you know, as a, a sophomore, junior in college, you don't have much power, and you, you know, and, and I remember being very resentful for getting a grade that I didn't think I deserved just because of who he was. Sure, what goes around comes around. What's coming next? If you had to make three predictions, what would they be? I already talked about consolidation. I think that apps is going to happen in the industry. I think that you know. From a accessibility standpoint, the way that people can find their content and the way that it's served up to them is going to continue to evolve. And, and I think it probably will be a combination of uh, search and social. You know, I, we, we probably, everybody experiences the daily kind of alerts that you tend to get from Netflix where, oh my God, this new stand up special has just been posted. You should check it out. And then I'm constantly getting, my friends and colleagues tips and and suggestions for what to watch and very often it's it, it still is a little water cooler stuff i mean i remember when the the oj simpson documentary kind of were for that's what everybody was talking about and i wasn't reading about it it was more just Doug, catch up. You got to watch it because everybody's and you want to be in the know. And so I think that's there. What's the third one? Let's see. I'd like to think that there's going to be a more and more appreciation and value put on experience in this business. You know, it, it, it's, it's really been interesting to me working with so many millennials, which as a person who's getting older day by day, it caught me by surprise, to be honest with you, in terms of how they may respond to some of the advice that a person like myself would have. And, and you know, listen, many of these young f folks grew up making content from their teenage years and thinking that they know exactly and everything that, you know, their audience wants to watch. But I still believe that a person like myself and other folks who come from worlds of TV or film or 
even radio, look at this podcast that's happening right now, can add tremendous value to the world of new media. I think that's absolutely right. I was actually talking about this with Matt Levin from Donut Media on a previous podcast about the historical evolution of media has a lot to teach us about what's going to impact this this particular instance or evolution of new media. So I totally agree. I think your predictions about collaboration, enhanced accessibility, and the fact that experience is going to pay dividends in this business are all very much going to come. And I think that, listen, business is tough for what we do. I mean, it, it is changing so quickly. And that so having experience in, in other forms of entertainment and media can inform what you're doing. And in some cases, inform you in terms of what not to do. I've learned, I mean, I really believe this to my kind of heart and soul that the education that I've gotten in the last four or five years, kind of launching media, launching me to raising money, learning from influencers, learn is more valuable than any kind of master's degree I could have gotten anywhere else. I mean, it is in fact an MBA mixed with a master's mixed with, you know, a little bit of a, a law degree all rolled up in one. If you were starting a business in the online video space today, what would you do? I feel like I'm still starting a business. I mean, which, which is really interesting. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean you know, uh, that's why I say, I mean, every day, you know, I think there are certain lessons that you could apply to any business that you're doing. Keep overhead low. I think that's a really, really important but obvious point that, you know, you, you lose track of. You grow so quickly, you start hiring, you start building out and burn gets up there. And, and I think that that's just a, a really important lesson that all entrepreneurs should, should, should think about. And, and we did that really, really well on the TV side where uh, it was easier to do that. In some ways, the, you know, we had to grow as quickly and, and on many levels, I'm excited that we did, but it, it's sometimes scary seeing a hundred plus folks uh, in our office now and the size of our office and the, you know, all the, the, the new, divisions that we're, we're launching to support the core business is important. So I think that that is something that, you know, if you can find ways of keeping your team lean and mean, it's really important. And where can people find out more about you and more about Me Too? Please check out Me Too on all the, the social sites. Uh, it's wearemetoo.com is our own that operated. On Facebook, you can find us at We Are Me Too. On Snapchat, you can find the, the Me Too uh, tile on the discover page. Uh, myself, you'll find me at uh, Doug underscore Grife on, on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram a little bit. This has been great. Oh, it's been a blast. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time. <laughs>